Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. Volume 2 Chapter 4 I Ship Aboard the Flipper When the two-seated spring wagon drew up before the tavern door, quite a crowd of idle villagers assembled to see us off, and among them I noticed my father's old sailor, Ned Britton. Uncle Naboth climbed aboard at once, but I stayed to shake the hands held out to me and to thank the Batteraft people for their hearty wishes for my future prosperity. I think they were sorry to see me go, and I know I felt a sudden pang of regret at parting from the place where I had lived so long and the simple villagers who had been my friends. When at last I mounted to the rear seat of the wagon and sat beside my uncle, I was astonished to find Ned Britton established beside the driver. Are you going with us? I asked. The sailor nodded. It's like this, remarked Mr. Perkins as we rolled away from the tavern. This man belonged to me old partner, Captain Steele, and stuck to his ship till she went down. Also, he's put himself out to come here and tell us the news. It ain't every sailor as'll take the trouble to do such a job. Therefore, Ned Britton's being at present without a ship, I've asked him to take a berth aboard the flipper. That was kind of you, Uncle, I said, pleased at this evidence of my relative's kindly nature. An honest sailor ain't to be sneezed at, continued Uncle Naboth with one of his quaint winks. If Ned Britton were faithful to the Saracen, he'll be faithful to the Flipper, and that's the sort of man we want. Britton doubtless overheard every word of this eulogy, but he gazed stolidly ahead and paid no attention to my uncle's words of praise. We reached the railway station in ample time for the train, and soon were whirling away on a long journey into the Golden West. No incident worthy of note occurred on our way across the continent, although I might record a bit of diplomacy on the part of Uncle Naboth that illustrates the peculiar shrewdness I've always found coupled with his native simplicity. Just before our train drew into Chicago, where we were to change cars and spend the best part of the day, my uncle slipped into my hand a long, fat pocketbook, saying, Hide that in your pocket, Sam, and button it up tight. What's your idea, Uncle Nabe? I asked. Why, we're coming to the wickedest city in all the world, according to the preachers. And if it ain't that, it's bad enough in all conscience. There's robbers and hold-up men by the thousands. And if one of them got hold of me, I'd be busted in half a second. But none of them would think of holding up a boy like you. So the money's safe in your pocket, if you don't go and lose it. I'll try not to do that, sir, I returned. But all during the day, the possession of the big pocketbook made me nervous and uneasy. I constantly felt of my breast to see that the money was still there, and it is a wonder my actions did not betray to some sly thief the fact that I was concealing the combined wealth of our little party. No attempt was made to rob us, however, either at Chicago or during the remainder of the journey to the Pacific coast, and we arrived at our destination safely and in good spirits. Uncle Naboth seemed especially pleased to reach San Francisco again. This car traveling is good enough for landsmen that don't know of anything better. I'd rather spend a month at sea than a night in one of them stuffy, dangerous cars that are likely to run off the track at any minute. Ned Britton and I accompanied Mr. Perkins to a modest but respectable lodging house near the bay, where we secured rooms and partook of a hearty breakfast. Then we took a long walk, and I got my first sight of the famous Golden Gate. I was surprised at the great quantity of shipping in the bay, 
and as I looked over the hundreds of craft at anchor, I wondered curiously which one was the flipper, the one of which I was part owner, the gallant ship whose praises Uncle Naboth had sung so persistently ever since we left Batteraft. After luncheon, we hired a small boat, and Ned Britton undertook to row us aboard the flipper, which had been hidden from our view by a point of land. I tell you that after my uncle's glowing descriptions of her, I expected to see the most beautiful schooner in the world, with lines even nobler than those of the grand old Saracen, which had been my father's pride and joy for so many years. But my disappointment may be imagined when we drew up to a grimy-looking vessel of some six hundred tons, with discolored sails, weather-worn rigging, and a glaring need of fresh paint. Ned Britton, however, rested on his oars and studied the ship carefully, and then slowly nodded his head in approval. "'What do you think of her?' asked Uncle Naboth, relapsing into one of his silent chuckles at the expression of my face. "'She looks rather dirty, sir,' I answered honestly. "'Well, the flipper ain't quite as fresh as a lily in bloom, that's a fact.' returned my uncle in no way discomfited by my remark. She wasn't no debutante when I bought her, and her clothes has got old and darned and patched, being as we haven't been near a Paris dressmaker. But I've sailed in her these ten years past, Sam, and we're both as sound as a dollar. She ought to be fast, sir, remarked Britton critically. Mr. Perkins laughed, not aloud, but in his silent, distinct, humorous way. She is fast, my lad which is a virtue in a ship if it ain't a woman. And in some other ways, besides the flipper ain't to be sneezed at. As for her age, she's too shy to tell it, but I guess it entitles her to full respect. We now drew up alongside and climbed upon the deck, where my uncle was greeted by a tall, lanky man who appeared to my curious eyes to be a good example of a living skeleton. His clothes covered his bones like bags, and so thin and drawn was his face that his expression was one of constant pain. "'Morden, Captain,' said Uncle Naboth, although it was afternoon. "'Good morning, Mr. Perkins,' returned the other in a sad voice. "'Glad to see you back.' "'This here is me nephew, Sam Steele, whose father were part owner, but got lost in a storm a while ago.' "'Glad to see you, sir,' said the captain, giving my hand a melancholy shake. This here is Ned Britton, who once sailed with Captain Steele, continued my uncle. He's going to sign with us, Captain Gay. Glad to see you, Britton, repeated the captain in his dismal voice. If the lanky captain was as glad to see us all as his words indicated, his expression fully contradicted the fact. Britton saluted and walked aft, where I noticed several sailors squatting upon the deck in careless attitudes. To my glance, these seemed as solemn and joyless as their captain, but I acknowledged that on this first visit everything about the ship was a disappointment to me, perhaps because I had had little experience with trading vessels, and my mind was stored with recollections of the trim Saracen. Below, however, was a comfortable cabin well fitted up, and Uncle Naboth showed me a berth next to his own private room, which was to be my future home. The place was little more than a closet, but I decided it would do well. I thought you were the captain of the flipper, Uncle Naboth, I said, when we were alone. Oh no, I'm just supercargo, he replied with the usual wink. You see, I wasn't educated as a sailor, Sam, and never cared to learn the trade. Cotton Gay is one of the best seamen ever laid a course, so I hire him to take the ship wherever I want to go. As for the cargo, that's me special lookout, and it keeps me busy enough. 
I can tell you that. I'm a natural-born trader, and except for that blamed Japan trip, I ain't much ashamed of me record. Are you going to go to Australia again, I asked? Not just now, Sam. Me next venture is going to be a bit irregular. What you want to call speculative and extra-hazardous. But we'll talk that over tonight, after supper. After making a cursory examination of the ship, Uncle Naboth received the captain's report of what had transpired in his absence, and then we rode back to town again. We strolled through the city streets for an hour, had supper, and then my uncle took me to his room, carefully closed and locked the door, and announced that he was ready to talk business. Being partners, we've got to consult together, but I take it you won't feel bad, Sam, if I do most of the consulting. I went down east to Batteraft to talk my plans with your father, but he slipped his cable and I've got to talk to you instead. If you see I'm wrong anywhere, just chip in and stop me, but otherwise the less you say the more good we'll get out of this here conference. Very well, sir. To start with, we got a ship and a crew and plenty of loose money, so what do we do with them? Our business is to trade and invest our money so we'll make more of it. What's the best way to do that? He seemed to pause for a second, so I said, I don't know, sir. Nobody knows, of course. But we can guess, and then we find out afterwards if we've guessed right. All business is a gamble, my boy, and if it wasn't, most men would quit and go fishing. After I got back from Japan, I met a lot of fellows that had been to Alaska hunting gold. Seems like Alaska's full of gold, and before long the whole country will be flocking there like sheep. All of Frisco's getting excited about the thing, so they tell me. And if fortunes is going to be made in Alaska, we may as well speak for one ourselves. But we're not miners, Uncle. And it's bitter cold up there, they say. Well put. We'll let the crowds mine the gold and then hand it over to us. I don't think I understand, I said weakly. No call for you to try, Sam. I'm your guardian, and so I'll do the understanding for both of us. Folks has to eat, my lad, and gold hunters is usually too excited to make proper provisions for their stomachs. They're going to be mighty hungry out in Alaska before long, and when a man's hungry, he'll pay liberal for a square meal. Let's give it to him, Sam, and take the consequences, which is gold dust and nuggets. How will you do that, Uncle Nabe? Load the flipper with grub and carry it to Kipnak, or up the Yukon as far as Fort Ware, or wherever the gold fields open up. Then, when the miners get hungry, they'll come to us and trade their gold for groceries. We're sure to make big profits, Sam. It sounds like a reasonable proposition, sir, but it seems to me rather dangerous. Suppose our ship gets frozen in the ice and we can't get away, and suppose about that time we've sold out our provisions. We can't eat gold, and suppose... Suppose the moon falls out of the sky, interrupted Uncle Naboth. Wouldn't it be dark all night, though? Well, sir... If the gold diggers can live up on the ice fields, we can live in a good warm ship, and we'll keep enough grub for ourselves. You can be sure of that. When do we start? I asked, feeling sure no arguments would move my uncle to abandon the trip once he had made up his mind to undertake it. Soon as we can get the cargo aboard. It's coming on warmer weather now, and this is the best time to make the voyage. A steamer left today with 300 prospectors, and they'll be going in bunches every day now. Already, I estimate, there's over a thousand in the fields. So we won't get there any too soon to do business. What do you say, Sam? 
I've got nothing to say, sir. Being my guardian, you've decided the matter for us, as is right and proper. As your assistant and clerk, I'll obey whatever orders you give me. That's the proper spirit, lad, he cried with enthusiasm. We'll go to work tomorrow morning, and if all goes well, we'll be afloat in ten days with a full cargo. Chapter 5. The Flipper Sets Sail On the 7th day of May, 1897, the Flipper weighed anchor and sailed before a light breeze through the Golden Gate and away on her voyage toward Alaska and its gold fields. Stored within her hold was a vast quantity of provisions of the sort that could be kept indefinitely without danger of spoiling. Flour, hams, bacon, sugar, and coffee were represented but canned meats and vegetables, tobacco, and cheap cigars comprised by far the greater part of the cargo. Uncle Naboth had been seriously advised to carry a good supply of liquor, but refused positively to traffic in such merchandise. Indeed, my uncle rose many degrees in my respect after I had watched for a time his preparations for our voyage. Simple, rough, and uneducated he might be, but a shrewder man at a bargain I had never met in all my experience and his reputation for honesty was so well established that his credit was practically unlimited among the wholesale grocers and notion jobbers of San Francisco. Everybody seemed ready and anxious to assist him, and the amount of consideration he met with on every hand was really wonderful. We bought the right stuff, Sam, he said to me as we stood on the deck and watched the shore gradually recede. And now we've got to sell it right. That's the secret of good trading. I was glad enough to find myself at sea, where I could rest from my labors of the past two weeks. I had been upon the docks day and night, it seemed, checking off packages of goods as fast as they were loaded onto the lighters, and being unaccustomed to work, I tired very easily. But my books were all accurate in ship shape, and I found opportunity to fit up my little stateroom with many comforts. In this I had been aided by Uncle Naboth, who was exceedingly liberal in allowing me money for whatever I required. At one time I said I would like to buy a few books, and the next day, to my surprise, he sent to my room a box containing the complete works of Walter Scott and Robert Louis Stevenson, with a miscellaneous collection of volumes by standard authors. I don't know much about books myself, Sam, so I got a feller that does know to pick them out for me, and I guess you'll find them the right sort. I didn't tell him that I would have preferred to make my own selection, and afterwards I frankly admitted to myself that the collection was an admirable one. By this time I had come to know all the officers and crew, and found them a pretty good lot taken altogether. The principal characters aboard were the dismal Captain Gay, who was really as contented a man as I had ever known, Acker, the ship's doctor, and two queer black men called by everybody Nux and Brionia. Acker was a big burly Englishman, who besides being a doctor served as the mate. He was jolly and good-natured as the day was long, and had a few good stories which he told over and over again, invariably laughing at them more heartily than his auditors did. Singularly enough, Captain Gay and Doc Acker were close friends and cronies, and lived together in perfect harmony. The black men interested me greatly from the first moment I saw them. Bryonia, or Bry as he was more frequently called, was the cook, and gave perfect satisfaction in that capacity. Nux was man of all work, serving the cabin mess, assisting the cook, and acting as able seaman whenever required. He proved competent in nearly all ways, and was a prime favorite with officers and men. 
They were natives of some small island of the Sulu archipelago, and their history was a strange one. In answer to my question as to why the blacks were so queerly named, Uncle Naboth related the following. It were about six years ago or thereabout, as we were homeward bound from our third Australia trip, we sighted a native canoe in the neighborhood of the Caroline Islands. It was early morning, and at first the lookout thought the canoe was empty. But it happened to lay in our course, and as we overtook it, we saw them two boys lying bound in the bottom of the boat. So we lay to and picked them up. When they were hoisted aboard, they were considerable more dead than alive. Bill Acker was our mate then, as he is now, and in his early days he studied to be a hoss doctor. So he always carries a box of medicines with him to fix up the men in case they get jaundice or colic. Mostly these pills and sugar-coated for Doc hates to tackle drugs, as is very dangerous. And on account of a good deal of sickness among the crew that trip, and consequently a good deal of experimenting by Doc on the medicine chest, the pills and such like were nearly used up, though no one much seemed worse for it. Well, after we'd cut them boys' bonds loose and rubbed them good to restore the circulation, we come near deciding they was dead and heaving them overboard again, but Doc wouldn't see it. He brought out the medicine box and found that all the stuff he had left was two bottles of pills, one of them Nux Vomica and the other Bryonia. I was working over one of them boys, and Doc, he hands me one of the bottles and says, Nux. So I emptied the bottle into the dead man's mouth, and by Jinx Sam, he come around all right and is alive and kicking today. Cotton Gay dosed the other one with Bryonia, and it fetched him in no time. I won't swear it were the pills, you know, but the fact is those boys lived. Afterwards, we found the critters couldn't speak a word of English, nor tell us even what their names were. So we called one Nux and the other Bryonia, according to the medicine that saved their lives, and they've answered to those names ever since. The blacks were gentle and good-natured, and being grateful for their rescue, they had refused to leave the ship at the end of the voyage, and were now permanent fixtures of the flipper. They're not slaves, are they, I asked, when I'd listened to the story. Mercy, no. They're as free as any of us, and draw their wages regular. Also, they're as faithful as the day is long, and never get drunk or mutinous. So it were a lucky day when we picked them up. Bryonia stood fully six feet in height, and was muscular and wonderfully strong. He had a fine face, too, and large and intelligent eyes. Nux was much shorter, and inclined to be fat. But he was not a bit lazy for all that, and accomplished an immense amount of work in so cheerful a manner that never a complaint was laid at his door. Not a sailor could climb aloft with more agility or a surer foot, and both Nux and Bryonia were absolutely fearless in the face of danger. Although these men were black, they were not African, but belonged to a branch of the Malay race. Their hair was straight, their noses well formed, and their eyes very expressive and intelligent. The English they had picked up from the crew, however, was spoken with an accent not unlike that peculiar to African Negroes, but with a softer and more sibilant tone. Before I had been on the ship a week, both Nux and Bry were my faithful friends and devoted followers, and in the days that were to come their friendship and faithfulness stood me in good stead. A very interesting person to me was Big Bill Acker, the mate, called by courtesy Doc. He seemed far above his mates in the matter of intelligence, and was evidently a well-bred man at his youth. 
A shelf above his bunk bore a well-thumbed row of volumes on the world's great religions, together with a Talmud, a Koran, a Bible, the works of Confucius, and Max Muller's translation of the Vedas. One seemed to have been as thoroughly read as the others, yet never have I heard Doc Acker say one word, good or bad, about religion. Whatever the result of his studies might be, he kept his opinions strictly to himself. A stiff breeze sprang up during the first night, and the second day at sea found me miserably ill, and regretting that I had ever trusted myself to the mercies of cruel old ocean. Indeed, I lay in a most pitiable plight until the big Englishman came to me with doses of medicine from his chest. He might have been merely a hoss doctor, as Uncle Naboth had said, but I am certain it was his remedies that helped me, and within twenty-four hours I was able to walk the deck in comfort again. Perhaps I had inherited some of my father's fondness for salt water, for my new life soon became vastly interesting to me, and it was not long before I felt entirely at home on the dingy old flipper. One morning, after standing by the bulwarks for a time watching the water slip by, I climbed upon the rail and sat with my heels dangling over the side. Suddenly I felt a strong hand grasp my shoulder and draw me back to the deck. I turned around indignantly to find black knucks beside me. Bad place to sit, Master Sam. Might tumble overboard. Before I could reply, Uncle Naboth, who had witnessed the incident, strolled up to us and said, Knox is right, my lad. You'll never find a sailor sitting on the rail. They know too well how unreliable the motion of a ship is. If anybody drops overboard, the chances of being picked up alive is mighty slim. I tell you, only fools put themselves into unnecessary danger, Sam. Take it on them awful railroad cars, for instance. Old travelers always wait till the train stops before they get on and off the cars. Them as don't know the danger is the ones that get hurt. Same as handling a gun. An old hunter once told me he never pointed a gun at anything he didn't want to kill. But there's a lot of folks killed every year that don't know the blame thing is loaded. It ain't cowardly to be careful, lad, but only fools and ignorant people is reckless enough to be careless. I'm glad to say I took this lecture with good humor, admitting frankly that Uncle Naboth was right. At least once in the future, a recollection of this caution saved me from hopeless disaster. On the sixth day, the breeze died away and the ship lay still. There was not a breath of air, and the heat was so intense that the interior of the ship was like a furnace. At night, we slept upon the deck, and by day, we lay gasping beneath the shade of the tarpaulins. Bryonia let the galley fire die out and served us cold lunches, but our appetites were small. There being no occasion to work, the crew gathered in little bunches and told a series of never-ending yarns that were very interesting to me, because most of them were of hair-breadth adventures and escapes that were positively wonderful. If one tried to believe them, one of the best of these storytellers was Ned Britton, who had been appointed our boatswain and was already popular with his mates. As his yarns were all of the Atlantic, and most of the flipper's crew had sailed only the Pacific, Britain opened them to a new field of adventures, which met universal approval. Nux and Bry, who bore the heat better than their white brethren, added to the general amusement by giving exhibitions of the moral war dances, ending with desperate accounts with sticks to represent spears that were sure to arouse the entire crew to enthusiasm. They sometimes sang their native war songs, 
also a series of monotonous guttural chants. And then Dan Donegan, a little red-whiskered Irishman, would wind up with Brian O'Lynn or some other comic ditty that set the forecastle roaring with laughter. During this period of enforced idleness, the dismal Captain Gay walked the deck with solemn patience and watched for signs of a breeze. Bill Acker, the mate, read his religious library all through, probably for the hundredth time. Uncle Nabe taught me cribbage, and we played for hours at a time, although I usually came out second best at the game. I also learned the ropes of the ship and received many lessons in navigation from my friends the sailors, not one of whom knew anything about that abstruse problem. There ain't a man of the lot as could take the ship back to Frisco in case of emergency, said my uncle. And I believe he was right. Common sailors are singularly ignorant of navigation, although they have a way of deceiving themselves into thinking they know all about it. After being becalmed six days, the intense heat was at last relieved by a thin breeze which sprung up during the night. The sails were at once trimmed, and within an hour the flipper was skipping the little waves to the satisfaction of all aboard. But the wind steadily increased, and by morning all hands were called to shorten sail. By noon we encountered a stiff gale which blew in from the east, and soon lashed the waves into a mad frenzy. As the storm gradually increased, Captain Gay began to look anxious. There was a brief lull toward evening, during which a great hailstorm descended upon us, the icy bullets pelting the sailors unmercifully and driving all to shelter. Then the wind redoubled its fury, and the captain put the ship before it, allowing the gale to bear us considerably out of our course. Uncle Naboth growled considerably at this necessity, but he did not interfere in the least with Captain Gay's management of the ship. Safety was more important to us than time, and Gay was not a man to take unnecessary chances. The three wild days that followed have always seemed to me since like a horrible dream. I had no idea a ship could be so tossed and pounded and battered around and still live. It was a mere chip on the great angry ocean, and the water washed our decks almost continually. After one of those deluges, when every man strove to save himself by clinging to the lifelines, two of our best sailors were missed, and we never saw them again. Uncle Nabe began to whistle, and every time he saw me, he gave one of his humorous winks, or fell to chuckling in his silent way. But my white face could not have been much encouragement to gaiety, and I believe he was not over merry himself, but merely trying to cheer me up. But although the danger was so imminent, not a man flinched or gave way to fear, and Nux and Brionia performed their duties as calmly as if the sea were smooth. The vessel was staunch enough so far, but it pitched and tossed so violently that even burly Doc Acker was obliged to crawl into the cabin on his hands and knees to get his meals. We fled before the wind until the third night, when the rudder chain broke and the helmsman was thrown, crushed and bleeding against the lead bulwarks. The flipper, released from all control, swung quickly around, and the big mainmast snapped like a pipe stem and came tumbling by its cordage to the decks, where our brave sailors rushed upon it and cut it clear. I thought the ship would never ride again after the careening given it by the fallen mast, but somehow it did, and morning found us still afloat, although badly crippled and at the mercy of the waves. As if satisfied with the havoc it had wrought, the gale now abated, but the waves ran high for another forty-eight hours, and our crew could do nothing but cling to the remaining rigging 
and await calmer weather. Fortunately, our ballast and cargo held in place through all this, and the hull showed no sign of a leak. When the sea grew calmer, we floated upright upon the water, and it was found our straits were not nearly so desperate as we had feared. Yet our condition was serious enough to make me wonder what was to become of us. The rudder had become entirely washed away, and the mainmast was gone. The mizzenmast had broken at the head, and the foresail royals were in splinters. All the deck was cumbered with rigging, and the starboard bulwarks had been stove in by the fallen mast, and our crew was lessened by three able seamen. But Captain Gay, no less dismal than before, you may be sure, promptly began to issue orders, and the men fell to a will to repair the damage as best they might. First they rigged up a temporary rudder and swung it astern. It was a poor makeshift, however, and only with good weather could we hope that it would steer us to the nearest port. While the men cleared the decks and rigged up a jury mast under the supervision of the mate, Captain Gay took our bearings and ascertained that we had not departed so greatly from our course as we had feared. Yet it was impossible to make the mouth of the Yukon in our present condition, or even reach a shelter in the Bering Sea. It was found, however, that the Alaskan Peninsula was not far away, so we decided to draw as near to that as possible, in the hope of meeting a passing vessel or finding a temporary refuge on one of the numerous islands that lie in this part of the North Pacific. For four days we labored along in our crippled condition, without sighting land. But then our fortunes changed. During the night a good breeze from the southwest swept us merrily along, and when daylight came we found ourselves close to a small wooded island. It lay in the form of a horseshoe with a broad protected bay in the center, and Captain Gay, anxious to examine his ship more closely, decided at once to enter the harbor and cast anchor. This was by no means an easy task, for long lines of reefs extended from each point of the shore, almost enclosing the bay with jagged rocks. But the sea was calm, and the position of the reefs clearly marked, so that by skillful maneuvering, the flipper passed between them in safety. And to the relief and satisfaction of all on board, we dropped our anchor in the clear waters of the bay. Chapter 6. The Land of Mystery Captain Gay examined his chart with minute care and solemnly shook his head. The island was not on the chart. Either the chart was imperfect or we had reached a hitherto undiscovered land. The latter conjecture was not at all unreasonable, for so many islands lay in this neighborhood that even when sighted by chance an outlying islet was little liable to tempt one to land upon it. This was doubtless one of the numerous group lying to the southeast of the Alaska Peninsula which are volcanic in origin and as a rule barren and uninhabited. I have said this island was well wooded, but not until we were opposite the mouth of the natural harbor did we observe this fact. From the sea only a line of rugged headlands and peaks showed plainly, and had we not been in distress, we would never have thought to stop at this place. Once within the harbor, however, the scene that met our view was not unattractive. Bordering the bay was a sandy beach, a full hundred yards in width, broken only by an inlet toward the left, or south, which seemed to lead into the interior of the island, winding between high and precipitous banks, and soon becoming lost to sight. Back of the beach was the clean-cut edge of a forest. 
not following a straight line, but rising and falling in hills and ravines, until it seemed from the bay to have been scalloped into a shape by a pair of huge scissors. The woods were thick and the trees of uniform size, and between them grew a mass of vines and underbrush that made them almost impenetrable. How far the forest extended we were unable to guess, nor did we know how wide the island might be, for back of the hills rose a range of wooded mountains nearly a thousand feet in height, and what might lie beyond these was, of course, a matter of conjecture. Uncle Naboth, however, advanced the opinion that the island ended at the mountain peaks and dropped sheer down to the sea beyond. He had seen many formations of that sort and supposed we had found the only possible harbor on the island. There was no apparent indication that the island had ever before been visited by humans. Even signs of native occupation were lacking. McCatton Gay decided to send a small boat ashore to explore the inlet before we could relax all vigilance and feel that we were not liable to attack or interruption. So the gig was lowered and four of the crew, accompanied by Bill Acker, the mate, set off upon their voyage of discovery. They rode straight to the inlet, which proved to be navigable, and soon after entering it, we lost sight of the boat as it wound between the wooded cliffs. We waited patiently an hour, then two hours, then three hours, but the boat didn't return. Then patience gave way to anxiety, and finally the suspense became unbearable. After the loss of our three sailors during the storm, we were reduced to eleven men, besides Uncle Naboth and myself, who were not counted members of the crew. Thirteen on board was not an especially lucky number, so that some of the men had been looking for disaster of some sort ever since we sighted the island. Those now remaining on the flipper were the captain, Ned Britton, and two other sailors, Nux and Brionia, my uncle and myself, eight all told. To send more men after the five who were absent would be to reduce our numbers more than was wise. Yet it was impossible for us to remain inactive. Finally, Ned Britton offered to attempt to make his way through the woods along the edge of the inlet and endeavor to find out what had become of Acker and his men. He armed himself with two revolvers and a stout cutlass. Then we rode him to the shore and watched him start on his expedition. Not expecting that Ned would be long absent, we did not at once return to the ship. Instead, the captain backed the boat into deep water and lay to, that we might pick up our messenger when he reappeared. It had been agreed that if Ned came upon the mate, he was to fire two shots in quick succession to let us know that all was well. If he encountered danger, he was to fire a single shot. If he wished us to come to his assistance, he would fire three shots. But the afternoon passed slowly and quietly, and no sound of any kind came from the interior to relieve our anxiety. The boat returned to the ship, and Brionia served our supper amid an ominous and gloomy silence on the part of those who were left. There was something uncanny about this mysterious disappearance of our comrades. Had they been able to return or to communicate with us, there was no doubt they would have done so. Therefore, their absence was fraught with unknown but no less certain terror. Big Bill Acker was a man of much resource and absolutely to be depended on, and Ned Britton, who had been fully warned and would be on his guard against all dangers, was shrewd and active and not liable to be caught napping. What then had they encountered? Wild beasts? Savages? Some awful natural phenomenon 
which had cruelly destroyed them? Our imaginations ran riot, but it was all imagination after all, and we were no nearer the truth. An anxious night passed, and at daybreak, Uncle Naboth called a council of war, at which all on board were present. We faced a hard proposition, you may be sure, for not one of us had any information to guide him, and all were alike in the dark. To desert our absent friends and sail away from the island was impossible, even if we had desired to do so, for our numbers were too small to permit us to work the disabled flipper in safety, and the ship's carpenter, on whom we greatly depended, had gone with the mate. All repairs must be postponed until the mystery of the men's disappearance was solved, and we firmly resolved that those of us remaining must not separate, but stick together to the last and stick to the ship as well. Good resolutions indeed, but we failed to consider the demands of an aroused curiosity. After two days had dragged their hours away without a sign of our absent comrades, human nature could bear the suspense no longer. Uncle Naboth called another council and said, Boys, we're acting like a pack of cowards. Let's follow after our friends and find them, dead or alive. We oughtn't to shrink from a danger we sent him into, and if we can't rescue him, let's run the chance of dying with him. This sentiment meant with general approval. All felt that the time for action had arrived, and if there was a reluctant man among us, he had made no sign of it. Early the next morning we partook of a hasty breakfast and then tumbled into the long boat to begin our quest. Everyone on the ship was to accompany the expedition, for nobody cared to be left behind. Uncle Naboth had first proposed to leave me on board and in the care of Bry, but I pleaded hard to go with the rest, and it was evident that I would be in as much danger aboard as in the company of the exploring party. So it was decided to take me along, and we practically deserted the ship, taking with us a fair supply of provisions and plenty of ammunition. The men were fully armed, and my uncle even entrusted me with a revolver, for I had learned to shoot fairly well. It was a beautiful morning, cool and fresh and sunny, as we rode away from the ship and headed for the inlet. That unknown and perhaps terrible dangers lay ahead of us we had good reason to expect, but every man was alert and vigilant and eager to unravel the mystery of this strange island. <laughs>